Hi everyone, just a quick message before we start today's episode. Join us on May 14th for ATS 2021, our annual conference that showcases the latest research and innovations in respiratory medicine. Discover breakthroughs in science, medicine, and patient care. Register now at conference.thoracic.org. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to another episode of Scholarly, brought to you by the journal ATS Scholar and the American Thoracic Society's section of medical education. My name is Avi Cooper and I'm the Pulmonary and Critical Care Fellowship Assistant Program Director at The Ohio State University. And I'm also a member of the podcasting team here at Scholarly. Today, I am excited to be joined by Dr. Anna Brady, lead author of the research article entitled Variation in Intensive Care Unit Intubation Practices in Pulmonary Critical Care Medicine Fellowship, published September 2020 in the journal ATS Scholar. Dr. Brady, is it okay if I call you Anna? Sure, Avi, absolutely. Please call me Anna. Um, Great. And do you mind introducing yourself for the audience? Yeah. Uh, So Avi, it turns out we have pretty similar jobs. I am also uh, an associate program director for our pulmonary critical care fellowship. Um, And our institutions have similar acronyms. I work at OHSU, which is Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. Awesome. And a a rising star in the field of medical education. That's very nice of you to say. Um, Do you mind telling us something about yourself that maybe people don't already know? Sure. Well, I think everyone who works with me knows this, but um, I am a very avid bike commuter. Uh, I mean, the Northwest is pretty, pretty easy for that. I grew up in Buffalo, New York, where year-round bike commuting was not really a thing, or at least not when I lived there. Um, but I love to bike to work now. Nice. And the hills are pretty manageable? or <laughs> I live on the flat side of the city, although the hospital's at the top of the hill. So That's great. That's great. Um, all right, well, uh, let's go ahead and dive right into the discussing your article, uh, which I really enjoyed reading and I think has a lot of important implications for, for procedural training uh, in the, the field of pulmonary critical care medicine. So do you mind walking us through your group's research question? Sure. So as a group, we were all really curious about how pulmonary critical care fellows learn to intubate during fellowship, um, especially how they learn to intubate crashing patients in the ICU. I think we had all had the experience of being a senior fellow or a junior attending and being responsible for intubating a really unstable patient in the unit. And we were just reflecting on our training experiences and wanted to study that more. And our specific question was sort of who owns the airway? And I'm using air quotes here because we were all from different institutions. And so anecdotally, we knew that at different places, there was a different culture around intubation, that some places anesthesiology did all of the out of OR intubations, including in the medical ICU. And in other places, the pulmonary critical care intensivist would manage all the ICU intubations. And we were really curious how that affected fellowship training. I mean, I personally was motivated by my own experience because I did residency and fellowship at places where anesthesia did all the out of OR intubations. Um, And then when I went to look for jobs, all the places I looked were places where pulmonary critical care did the intubations. And so that was sort of a revelation for me. And I was curious to know how widespread that phenomenon was. Yeah, I mean, I think that's great that you took your lived experience and how your career evolved and transformed it into a a research question. And you also gathered a really um, uh, diverse and kind of cool group of 
co uh, you know collaborators and 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 researchers together to, to to look at this. How did that group come together? Yeah, it was a, it was a great group, and we came together through the ATS section on medical education. Um, at the time, they had these pods that were devoted to different aspects of medical education scholarship, and so. I think our pod was originally centered around bedside teaching and obviously we morphed into something a little bit different, um, but it was great to have perspective from people all across the country. Um, some of the people in the pod I had worked with before and I knew that they did great scholarly work and some people I hadn't met before, but everyone had brought their own perspective and experience to the team, which I think made the project stronger. That's great. And can you summarize um, the, you know, the different kind of training paradigms and and models for airway training in pulmonary critical care medicine that kind of was the basis, I think, for your research question. Yeah, so we knew that there were a couple of different paradigms. You know, first there was sort of the dedicated airway rotation, which a lot of programs have, and there's older survey data of program directors that shows that many fellowship programs have a you know, dedicated month in the OR, for instance, where um, fellows can learn to intubate. Um, and then we knew from our anecdotal experience that there were two other paradigms kind of on top of that. There was sort of the anesthesia model and the, the pulmonary model. And we knew that there was probably going to be, uh, there might've been more, we weren't sure, but we were at least in our group kind of familiar with those two different paradigms where the pulmonary attending would sort of manage all the intubations and teach the fellow or where anesthesia would come. And, and from my own experience, you know, having an anesthesiologist doing an ICU intubation doesn't mean that the fellow doesn't get to intubate, but it's a little bit of a different experience when you're calling an outside team. And um, what was your, your kind of approach to study design and, and your rationale for how you, how you approach the, you know, asking this question? Yeah, well, we did decide to do a survey because we wanted to know um, how a common, those two different models, the anesthesia model and the pulmonary model were across the country. But we chose to use fellows as our respondents, not program directors, because we were really interested in fellows perspectives on what learning to intubate was like um, and wanted to know what they felt were some of the barriers to being able to intubate in the ICU. So we chose to survey fellows. And it seemed like you embedded the, the question or the, the survey in a, kind of an existing uh, fellowship or fellow workshop, like an educational activity that was happening at um, the ATS International Conference. Is that right? Yes, um, that turned out to be a great idea. It was definitely not my idea. It was someone else's on the team and it worked out great. Um, so we chose to use the Fellows Track Symposium at the ATS um, and we wrote the directors of that program. They were very supportive and we figured that, that uh, using that setting would allow us to get representation from a lot of different fellowship programs. And we felt like we would have a higher chance of people actually filling out the survey than if we had just you know, emailed um, through a listserv to try and get fellow input. Yeah, I, I, was, I was really impressed with that methodological choice because you get generalizability because you get this cross-sectional view of fellows from across the country and different programs. And then you also, I'm sure, greatly enriched your survey response rate because they're right there in the room with you. <laughs> And it's much easier to ask them to, to and then just get a, a response right away. So I think that's a great lesson for educational researchers designing projects, figuring out ways to, to achieve what you did with this. I think that's, that was really impressive. Thanks. And again, the credit goes to my team for that one. Um, so can you summarize your results? What did you guys find? 
Yes, so we did find a lot of variation in our central question, which was um, how often was the pulmonary critical care fellow in the MICU, the first call or the primary operator to intubate a medical ICU patient. So at about two thirds of the programs, the pulmonary critical care fellow was the primary operator for intubation always or almost always or most of the time. And at a little over a fifth of the programs, the pulmonary critical care fellow was rarely or never the primary operator. And then the remaining programs were a mix where sometimes they were and sometimes they weren't. Um, and the fellows who responded identified a lot of barriers to being able to intubate, including hospital policies around who could use induction agents, ICU census or acuity. Um, some of it was time of day, you know, by day they intubated, but by night it was anesthesia. And then a theme that came up a lot was the medical ICU attendings comfort level at intubating. Um, we didn't find any relationship between program size and whether or not fellows intubate, um, but we did find a relationship with program location. Um, and it turned out that programs in the Northeast were uh, more likely to have an anesthesiology team managing um, intubation in the medical ICU. Uh, yeah, I found it fascinating that that last point about how much regional variation there is an intubation practice and training for fellows. Um, and I'm sure that's not unique to just medical ICU intubations, but um, any thoughts as to, to why, why there are those differences? Yeah, I think, you know, I don't think there's anything special about the Northeast specifically. I don't think there's something in the water, you know, that did it, but I think there's, you know, it's really the culture of the place. And I think there's so many factors, um, you know, certainly tradition, and it might have to do with how many, you know, learners from competing programs there are. Um, I think this phenomenon plays out probably with other procedures. I've seen it play out with uh, EBUS. I think it probably plays out with other procedures that we share. So, you know, chest tubes, transvenous pacemakers, and I think there's a lot of stakeholders in, in these procedures. And and often, you know, a lot of tradition that that dictates what happens. But um, we didn't. Ex I didn't expect to see that regional variation necessarily. So that was an unexpected finding. Yeah, I think you guys did a great job of outlining the complexity. Um, obviously, the procedure is quite complex. But in terms of the factors that go into this, whether it's geographic, cultural, um, and then things like, like you said, with attending comfort level. ICU census acuity, whether it's day or night, um, you know, I, I think that I, I think that that's what struck me reading your paper was just how layered and complex this somewhat dichotomous thing is, whether or not fellows intubate or not. There are so many factors that influence that. So that's what stuck out to me. Uh, you know, I think uh, also one thing that I really appreciated about the paper and the way that you described. Um, ICU intubation is this is the holistic approach that, that you you know that you had you know that it's not just about delivering the tube successfully but when we're training fellows to safely and successfully intubate you know it's approaches to induction medication managing hemodynamics team leadership um, how can we best best foster that approach in you know in for, for training programs across the country yeah, I think that's a great question. I think a lot of trainees are very number focused um, and, and it's understandable, right? You know, for bronchoscopies, the ACGME says you have to do 100 in pulmonary critical care fellowship. So 
some of these targets are set externally, but I think there's not necessarily magic that happens after a certain number. And in those, those type of goals are uh, what are called performance goals. So, you know, I need to do 30 intubations on this you know, two week airway rotation, for instance. Um, those are performance goals. And there's some data from the preclinical or early clinical medical student literature that when trainees are learning procedures, those performance goals are actually not the best. They might not lead to the best learning. And, and I think that focus on numbers kind of can do our trainees a disservice. I, I certainly remember doing my airway rotation and thinking, okay, like I need, I'm at 25, like I need another five, but I can tell you there was no magic at intubation number 30. And certainly, you know, as I did more intubations in the ICU, I became aware of all these other things, but that wasn't my focus initially when I was trying to learn. And I think helping fellows move more to setting learning goals, on the other hand, which are kind of their own goals that they might set about how, you know, kind of why things are important related to the procedure. Um, you know, like my goal for this month is going to be to work out a system for picking a backup plan, you know, if my first attempt doesn't work. Um, and those types of goals are probably, based on some of the research, going to be more effective at having fellows learn. But I think some of that really requires a change in our system and a change as kind of the supervising attending and the teacher to really help fellows elicit those goals and help them understand it's not just about the tube. There's so much more that goes into it. Yeah, and I think having those number, somewhat arbitrary number cutoffs that like you said, if you've done 50, you're good to go, kind of risk the Dunning-Kruger effect a little bit potentially that, you know, maybe that the potential for mismatch and confidence and competence as fellows um, you know, grow in both, um, making sure that one doesn't maybe outstrip the other uh, because an arbitrary numerical threshold has been passed. Uh. Yeah, for sure. I think there's, you know, regardless of the numbers, and, and there are numbers out there, there's a, a range of numbers about how many intubations in general people need to do to be competent in various settings. But I think, first of all, it's an evolving field, like there are still studies going on. Um, and second of all, I think different trainees have different learning curves. You know, it might take this number for most people, but that doesn't mean that I or my fellow is going to follow that same curve. And so you have to be really mindful, I think, to assess your individual trainee to know, like, where are they at, um, you know, on the, on the path to competence. And it might not, it's not going to be the same for everybody. And so I think, you know, individual assessment and, and repeated assessment is going to be really important. I also, I like that you, the way that you kind of broke that, the, you know, the growth mindset, the way that you broke that down, you know, in terms of procedural, um, the procedural competence that someone has that, you know, you know, I, I, maybe this person, this person needs to work on choosing hemodynamically safe induction agents. Maybe this person needs to work on tube delivery. Um, and maybe this fellow needs to work on post intubation uh, you know, hemodynamic resuscitation, I don't know, but different fellows may be working on different things at different times. And I think recognizing that is, uh, I think that that makes a lot of sense and resonates with me as an educator. So um, before we wrap up, where do you see the, the future um, heading in terms of airway training in pulmonary and critical care medicine? Where are we going? Well, I'd, I don't know where it's going to go, but I can tell you where I'd like to see it go. Um, I'd like to 
see training be able to be a little bit more individualized. I think, you know, certainly again, reaching back to my own experience, um, I thought I would always work at a, you know, big academic center where I wouldn't need to intubate. And that was a, a wrong impression <laughs> based on, based on my training. And I trained with amazing intensivists. You know, these people are my role models to this day. And just because of the culture of the place, they didn't intubate, but that didn't, didn't in my mind detract in any way from their amazingness at, um, at being an intensivist. And, and then it turned out I did need to learn how to intubate. And so I think what I would like to see happen is for there to be training options for fellows who are at an institution where you know, anesthesia owns the airway, so to speak, where the culture is not for the pulmonary critical care fellows to intubate. For us to find a way kind of as a, as a society, as a profession to get those fellows training experience, because I think some people might come into fellowship and they know what they wanna do and they know where they wanna work. You know, some of our fellows come in and they know they wanna work in a small community where they need to be able to do all the procedures themselves because they don't have backup. But I also think that people's goals evolve um, or like mine, you know, my goals didn't really change, but it turned out the, the practice settings were just a lot different, more different than I had anticipated. And so I'd love to see some more flexibility in training. And, and I think it's gonna to be tough because it's gonna require collaboration potentially with people outside of our field. Um, and, and this gets complex. You know, there's a lot of trainees who need to learn how to intubate it. Even just within physician trainees, you have medical students doing their anesthesia rotation, you know, have anesthesiology, emergency medicine, pulmonary critical care. But then there are non-physician learners as well, EMTs, CRNAs. And so I think, you know, and again, this is not just intubation, right? There are other procedures that are shared by multiple specialties. And I'd love to see us be a little bit less siloed and able to collaborate more across disciplines. Because um, I don't think it's a zero-sum game. You know, we're all, we all have the same goal. And it can seem like a zero-sum game when you're trying to slot, you know, bodies into a rotation. But it's really not in the end, and I'd love to see more collaboration across disciplines. That's great, and I, I think we would be, if we if we would be lucky if that is our future, you know, non-siloed, collaborative, um, helping individual learners meet their individual goals, and I think that's, um, I think that's a that's a terrific message to end on, um, and so thank you so much, Anna, for coming on the podcast today. Uh, as always, it's such a pleasure to learn from, you know, cutting edge researchers and thought leaders in, in medical education, such as yourself. It's the, the best part of being able to co-host this podcast. It's a podcast. So you can't see me blushing, but um, thanks very much. Abby. It was a pleasure, um, pleasure being on with you this morning. Great conversation. So uh, that concludes this episode of Scholarly. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast player so that you can stay up to date on whenever new episodes are available. As a reminder, ATS Scholar is an open access journal and you can read the article discussed today at atsjournals.org. Take care.